welcome once again. Uh, today is our last day in the book of Galatians. And so if you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God, God's Word to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to be starting in verse 11 in just a moment. If you're a guest with us today, we would love to know that you're here. You can fill out the card in the seat back in front of you. And you can drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. And we'd love to contact you in a respectful way. Um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed going through the book of Galatians just to be reminded once again of, of the gospel and the truth that it declares over me it has been such a great comfort to me. And even this week as I've gone through this passage, once again, it's been a comfort to my own soul. And that's been my prayer for us as we go through this last portion in a great book in God's word. So if you would read along with me, starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are, pers who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this, your word, and I pray that today, as we consider it, that you would reveal to us ways in which maybe we're weary because of what we're trusting in or clinging to. I pray that you would realign those who've trusted in you with this one hope, this one boast, what you've accomplished for us rather than anything that we could do on our own. Father, I pray that you'd do that and make it so. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I want to ask this question before we begin to consider this passage. And the question is this. How do you measure a good life? How do you measure your life? How do you measure it? At the end of it, what would cause you to say, this is good. I've spent my life in ways that are good. And the way that we answer that question can lead to many different conclusions at the end of life. It can lead to many different conclusions along the way to the end of life. It can lead to many fragile egos because once you determine what makes a good life, maybe you feel like you're not living up to what makes a good life. Maybe what other people have defined as a good life, you see how you do not measure up to their expectations of a good life. On the other hand, sometimes maybe the answer to that question can lead to very sturdy egos where we think maybe we're doing pretty good based on how we would answer that question. 
And either way, whether we come in here with really fragile self-esteem or really confident uh, self-esteem, whichever way you go, the answer to this question, according to God's word, really matters. Earlier in this chapter, uh, in Galatians 6.3, Paul says, If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And he's been laying out this warning from the very beginning of this book that we should think rightly about how to measure what is good. Personally, the clearer we get this answer, uh, the more that we're going to be able to walk with confidence and joy. And here's the one thing. The gospel offers us this solution to this problem. What is a good life? Tim Keller says it like this. All of us need to hear someone in the world say, well done. You're okay. We're all longing for that affirmation of God himself, of God Almighty, to look at our lives and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or Augustine would say, God's made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. All of us have this restlessness about us where we're wanting that approval. We want to be approved by God, to, to be embraced by him. And that question of how we measure our lives uh, culturally as Christians could not be more different than the world. The world is offering us all kinds of boasts that we could bring and say, this is how we measure success. But the gospel offers something entirely different. Now, I want to quickly recap Galatians to get you to the point that we're at today. Paul is writing this letter because he had planted a church there and they had heard the gospel and someone else had come in and told them that there was some other way to be made right with God, that there was something else that they could add to their salvation, namely circumcision. And he writes to them saying, how could you be so deluded? How could you be so foolish to be misled in this direction? He's correcting them all throughout this this uh, book first with saying, hey, this is my authority, this is what the gospel is, and this is what a good life looks like. And the way that you measure your life through the lens of the gospel is this, not what you can do, but what God has done for you. That's the bottom line of the whole book. The way that we measure a life is not what we can do, but what God's done for us. It's not who we've become, but who God is making us to be. And it's not what we can accomplish but what God is accomplishing through us. So with that uh, banner in mind, I want to go through a couple observations in this text. First, he's going to lay out the vanity of every other boast. He's going to say these things are not good boasts, and he's going to explain why that this other plan will not work. And then he's going to lay out what it looks like for him to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. So first, the vanity of all other boasts. He begins this portion of the passage by saying, hey, look, I'm writing in all caps here. In other words, I want you to get this. A lot of times someone would have a scribe writing for them. So he's been uh, giving all these words, and now he's like, let me pick up the pen. I want to write this myself. And so he writes it really big so that they could see that it's Paul who's writing it. And this was common for him. He would write a postscript to his letter. So he picks up the pen so that they'd recognize his writing, and he's like, listen, I want you to get this. He's writing with extra big letters in order to demonstrate the conclusion and the gravity that what he's saying in this letter really matters. And he's answering the question with these big letters, why are they doing this to you? 
Why do they want you so badly to be circumcised? And he's going to explain it first in the appeal and then the problems with their appeal. The first, the appeal. They want to make a good show for themselves. They're pursuing the positive benefits of being circumcised in order that they could gratify not their desire to please God, but in order to be noticed by others, admired by others, respected, adorned, counted worthy, respectable by the the Jewish community, namely. So here's what you need to understand. They would have been receiving a lot of persecution because of following Jesus. Not only because of following Jesus, but now the people that they've avoided for their entire life, now they're having meals together. Now, can you imagine from the time you're in grade school, someone telling you, you cannot sit at the same table with those Gentiles, okay? You can't do that. You can't share the same food as them. You cannot be in the same company with them. You need to avoid the bad company of the Gentiles. And now suddenly, God's making this new community where all of them, they're eating together and all their Jewish friends they grew up with are going, what are you doing? And so this group of people, this Jewish group of converts are trying to make a good showing by saying, hey, these people, they're like us. They're joining the Jewish community. They're getting circumcised. They're practicing our customs so that they could avoid being persecuted by the people they grew up with, okay? Hometown folks are looking at them going, we don't want you to hang out with these Gentiles. God's making a new community here. And he's this group of Judaizers are trying to convince them to be circumcised so that they could still boast in something they could accomplish so that they wouldn't be rejected by the community they grew up in. So they're pursuing good, positive benefits from external religion. They're avoiding the negative uh, things of the Jewish persecution. Now, I just want to point out that this uh, same kind of thing happens in tight communities in the South. God makes a new community of faith happen and it's really diverse. And suddenly there's people that you're like a little bit embarrassed to be showing up with, maybe at a restaurant or with other people. And God's pointing this out and showing you, hey, I'm making something new happen here because of my grace, not because of something that they could put on and dress like you, act like you, talk like you, behave like you. And God's making a new community of faith. And he's saying, look, if, if you boast in something external, it's not going to be good. In fact, the way that he warns them is by saying, this is hypocrisy. They want these things from you that they don't even require of themselves. They want you to obey some portion of the law. They're not even good at obeying the law. Jesus compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. They're really clean on the outside, but you still got a dead body in there. Look, in in my own example of bad parenting, there's lots of moments that I want behavior from my kids that I do not get produce, okay? This week, I looked at my wife and was like, can you believe they leave all these clothes on the floor? And she pointed behind me, and there were my clothes (laughs) on the floor. They made this kind of attempt to control the people so that they'd have a good show, so that they could perform in their flesh, so that other people would look at them and see, oh, you have control over these bad Gentiles that you're sharing meals with. It was hypocrisy at its worst. They're boasting to other people about their allegiance of these people who would be circumcised. So they would go and tell people, hey, we have influence with these Gentiles. They're becoming like us, like us Jews. 
Before I move on, I want to take a moment and just consider how we might apply this word to us. Fundamentally, there was a dispute over the question, is Christianity something external that we could perform or something internal that happens in our hearts? Which one is it? Is it outward in a way that you can control it in appearances, something that others could control and measure? Or is it internal, a change that happens from within the heart? The Judaizers were convinced that the only way to be served, to be saved, was to follow these customs. Acts 15.1 said you cannot be, they were saying you can't be saved unless you get circumcised, which sounds ridiculous for us, right? Like it's not something anybody in this room likely boasts in. But in that boast, they were denying the truth that's foundational to our salvation, that salvation comes only through Christ alone, through faith in him. So why did they push it? They, like all of us, like a good showing. We like to perform things in our flesh so that others will notice. We like those kinds of things. That's part of the predicament of our sinful flesh. We want people to acknowledge us and see all of our attempts to adhere to what we define as a good life. We want others to notice those things. Pride causes us to hold on to our own show. It causes us to cling to our own glory and to cling to our own control of these things. That's what this group of people had. They thought they had some temporary glory. They had a good show. They had some temporary kinds of control over the people they had influence with, and they wanted that. I would say more than they wanted Christ himself. These kinds of things make us avoid the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Maybe you came in here thinking, I love the cross. I love Jesus. But there are times and ways that we can still struggle and avoid looking at the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it points to our own need. It points to the gravity of our sins. Why would we avoid it? John Stott said it this way. Every time we look at the cross, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. This is why we would avoid it for our boast. He goes on to say, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our own true size. It's in that place where God brings us low. Like the Valley of Vision says in this book of Puritan prayers, we bring us low to the valley so that he might bring us high through his love. And of course, we don't like it. We don't like that because it requires a humiliation in us. So many times we would prefer a good show, the hypocrisy of our flesh, rather than the wound to our pride that we might receive glory that we were created for, one that's bestowed on us by Christ, not one that we could accomplish through our flesh. Paul stands in complete contrast to the way that they were trying to control these people. He's saying, look, far be it from me. Look at verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, look, 
I don't want any part of this. Far be it from me. Make there be distance between me and this idea that somehow you could accomplish something to make you worthy. So I want to move on to the second point. What does it look like for Paul to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? First, I want to explain what a boast is. Now, most of us think of boasting as kind of beating our chest and saying, look there, that was awesome. We did it, or I did it, or I accomplished it, or I came up with the idea that everyone liked in the boardroom. I liked it. That's what most people think of with a boast. And it is that, but it comes from a military term. It would have been like what people recited right before they walked into battle, okay? So they're standing, ready to walk into battle, and they're like, here's how many horses we have. Doesn't that sound good? And everybody's cheering. Here's how many chariots we have. And everyone's cheering and sounding good, right? Like they're excited. They're getting pumped, and somebody screams freedom, and they're all walking forward, right? That's what a boast is. It was something to get people pumped up for battle. It was so that they could endure to the death whatever it would require of them. And so he uses this term, this boast in the cross of Jesus Christ to explain this is what it's going to take for the battle. This is the only hope that we have. So a boast is something rehearsed before battle. And I love this boast in Psalm 20. It says this, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's so many appeals of the world to hold on to as the boast. One of the ways you can tell what you're boasting in is what you cling to when someone criticizes you or doesn't give you the acknowledgement that you really want. So when someone criticizes you, you probably have like a ready response, well, at least I do this. At least I haven't done this. And typically, it goes against what other people, you're measuring yourself by other people or by your own standard or something you take pride in. And Paul is saying, I'm only boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ? It first means that we're looking at what Christ accomplished on the cross. The significance of the moments that he hung there bleeding in our place for our sins, suffering for us. We acknowledge that this accomplished something beyond the moment. And first, we acknowledge the moment that it happened. We're not avoiding that. It's really hard to hold on to our pride when we think of the cross of Jesus Christ. The boast of the cross is foolishness to some, and to others, it's life. So for those that are in Christ Jesus, you would hear something like this, and there's something in your heart going, yes, this is my only hope. This is it. This is all I've got. And for others, it might seem diminished or small or even like foolishness, as it's described in 1 Corinthians. The boast of the cross is always going to be foolishness to those who reject their own need for redemption. So if anyone, the reason that it's offensive is because people have to see their need for it in order to embrace the reality of it. This is why it's so offensive, because people would come to us and say something like, so you're saying, you're saying that every, all the good people in the world, everyone who's lived really good lives, have no other way to come to, to God but through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished? Yep, that's what we're saying. And that's offensive. It's really offensive. Wait, so you're saying 
that the same way that we enter the kingdom of heaven is by grace through faith, the same as the homeless man on the other side of Jackson. We're both standing, coming, approaching the throne in the exact same way. That's offensive, especially for anyone who's clinging to some sense of authority and pride based on something they've done or haven't done. Something you've avoided or something you've accomplished. If you're clinging to either of those things, the message of the cross is offensive. But for those that are being saved, it's everything. Titus 3 says it this way, but when the goodness and loving kindness of of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This means something to those trusting in Jesus because we've come to terms with a few realities. We needed washing. We needed regeneration. We needed renewal. The wrath of God hung over us who cling to Jesus and we are okay with acknowledging that that is his just wrath. And it's been ultimately settled by the mercy of Jesus Christ. You cannot sing songs of joy about God's mercy unless you understand this. They will mean nothing to you. It will mean nothing to you if you're clinging to your own accomplishments because God's mercy will seem like a small thing he did for you back in time. It means that we believe Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If that's missing we will always be looking for some other escape from our guilt, our regret, our shame. We're going to be searching for some accomplishment to cling to, some relationship to validate us and say, well done, you're approved. We're looking for that always, always, unless this is true about us, that our only boast is what Christ has done for us. And the great news of the gospel is that we don't have to declare over ourselves that we're okay, that we're enough, that it's all right. Because Jesus did that on the cross for everyone who believes. <laughs> Look, if, you're, if, if there's someone, even if they have a degree that says that they're a counselor telling you all you needed to recite is I'm okay, I'm enough, it's never going to be enough. It will never, it'll never resolve those things. Like if you repeat those like a mantra, It's never going to settle the deepest question at the core where you're asking God, am I approved? The only thing that settles that is looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and him declaring over you and demonstrating to you that while you were still sinning, he he died for you. (laughs) So how does this happen? How do we exchange all the illusions of our own grandeur for the reality of glory that God would set on everyone who believes. How do we do that? Paul says it in this verse. My only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ by which two things have happened. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, sometimes God will graciously expose the futility that you were hoping would make you feel okay and confident and good enough 
Sometimes he will, he will let you not get the job you wanted or the career that you wanted or the marriage you wanted. And sometimes you, you'll lose those things and he'll reveal to you that it was never enough. And then there's other times when he gives you the things so that you can see that they were empty. Either way, for those in Christ, we have to come to some moment where we see the futility of those things. And what he's describing in this, the cross is not just the reality of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. It does mean our salvation, but it also provides the means for our sanctification. In other words, it provides the means by which we become like him. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, I want to explain each of those things. The world has been crucified to me. That means that the desires that the world has for you, and, and let me tell you, the, the world is promising you things right now. Just, just take a glance at all the advertisements, okay? They're saying, you can be happy. You can be fulfilled if you just have this product. Your kids will be happy. Buy them this gift, and how does all those Facebook ads know what I'm looking at for my kids, you know? How do they know that? The cross not only brought Christ to death, but it brings to death the ways that the world has a grasp on us, the promises of happiness that will eventually elude you, by which not only the world has been crucified to me, but I to the world. In other words, my own desires... It's not like the world brought all these things on a platter and said, here you go. My own flesh brought those things on a platter and said, here's all the things that the world has to offer. And through the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us, we're also receiving this gift. My desires are changing. The ways that I once wanted the things that the world could promise me of comfort, happiness, control, God is saying, I'm giving you something better, myself. It's not what you could do. He goes on to say this. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. Neither of those count for anything. So in other words, what you've done or what you've avoided, if that's what you're bringing before the throne, doesn't count for anything. Here's what counts. A new creation. It's not the things you could do or the things you didn't do. Boasting comes in what Christ is accomplishing in you and through you. Not only what Christ accomplished on the cross, but what he's doing now. All the things that you counted as gain, now you begin to count them as loss. You didn't come to that conclusion. God began to show that to you. And he's saying, this doesn't count for anything. This doesn't count for anything. Otherwise, we would be uh, hopeless. I heard this illustration this week of uh, a, a preaching professor who took pastors out to a cemetery. He said he, the last assignment of the, uh, of the semester was he basically took them, they prepared a sermon, they brought it to a seminary, and he said, all right, I want you to preach it. And they like would preach it out loud to the cemetery. And at the end, he'd say, I just want you to know for the rest of your ministry, that's what it is. Unless God brings people to life, from death to life, that's the task. You go and proclaim and in the same way, we have to be made new. You didn't somehow wake up and realize you don't desire the things of the world anymore. God has to do something in you and make you a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, it describes it like this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is coming. All this is from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So Paul's conclusion, nothing you do matters. What Christ has done for you matters. And through that, he wants to accomplish things through your life that you could not accomplish. So he not only reconciles us to himself, he gives us this ministry of reconciliation so that we can declare to the world, only through Christ can you be reconciled to God. So I wonder today, have you been changed like this? Because ultimately, the battle lines that Paul is drawing out is there's a group of people who would say that Christianity is something external. It's something you can put on and you can take off like a suit. And he's saying, no, it's something internal. It's something God has to do to bring the dead to life in you. And just as Christ was crucified and raised to new life, he wants to do that same kind of work in everyone who believes for the old you to be dead. That's what we celebrate in baptism, that there's something dead that's been raised to life in us. So, conclusion, okay? I really am wrapping it up. All that matters is this, what Christ has done for you and what he's doing in you. That's what matters. Or in other words, as C.S. Lewis put it, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That's it. It's all that we need is what Christ has done on our behalf. So I want to ask and and leave you with this question. How do you measure your life? There's a lot of questions that will matter, but none matter more than this question. How do you measure your life? Because Paul's plea to this group of people was not to measure it in something they could do externally, but to look at what God had done for them and to see that that's the ultimate declaration of who they are and what they are worth. It wasn't something they could do. It was something he had done. So do you think of what God has done more than what you think of what you could do? That's a a question that I have for myself too. Do I make more of what God has done for me than what I could do myself? Maybe some of you are like not making much of a boast. You're thinking a lot more of your failures. And that's another root of pride. Look, if you think more of your failures than of God's forgiveness, you're still putting yourself in the center of the story. So some of you make more of your failings than God's forgiveness. When you think of your life, are you measuring it in externals or internals, what God's doing through you? Do you see God's glory or do you see your own glory at the end of your life. Because the invitation of the gospel is to measure our lives not based on what we've done, but what what Christ has done for us. What if we measured our lives based on the glory that he gets, not on the ones that we get? The honor that he gets, not on what we could get. If we're after God's glory and not our own, uh, it changes the way that we see every inconvenience of the people around us, every slight, every failure to acknowledge us. Paul warns about this false way of life in Philippians, and he's saying, like, beware of these dogs that want you to be circumcised. He's really in, he really has to address this a lot through his ministry. And he's saying, look, we are the true circumcision. We are the true Israel. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's basically saying, look, I was really good at being a Jew. I was better than all of them. I had all of the accolades. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had quite a pedigree. He was a really good guy. And he came to this conclusion that I hope that some of you would come to and my own life would come to. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the invitation of the cross. To see what's ultimately valuable so that you don't preoccupy your life with rubbish. There's nothing that you're going to give up to pursue God that doesn't look like rubbish in comparison to him. All of the accomplishments that you could potentially have in your life. All of the affirmations that the world could give you in your life. All of them one day will look like rubbish. The invitation of the gospel is to acknowledge that they're rubbish today. It's to see that he's of surpassing value and weight. And that's the invitation of Jesus. And here's the promise that Paul gives them. Those who walk by this rule, you get peace, you get mercy. Okay? Anybody in desperate need of some peace and desperate need of some mercy? That's what he declares as a blessing as he closes over this congregation, over everyone who would re- receive this word. Because of these things that you think will potentially give you peace, look, it's going to be elusive to you throughout all your life. But if you walk by this rule, that your confidence is in what Christ did for you and not what you could do for him, if you walk by this rule, this is the the promise of the gospel that you receive. Peace, first with God, with other people, because you don't care what they think anymore. You receive mercy, the relenting of God's justice and wrath, all of these things you receive. And he says, this is for the Israel of God. In other words, God's true people, God's real people, the ones that really belong to him, you get peace, you get mercy. That's the promise. And from now on, don't anybody bother me because I got the wounds of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 17. Everybody leave me alone. And he concludes with this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirits. I, uh, I think the invitation today for us is to exchange all the things that would make us feel like we're doing all right, we're okay, for the reality that Christ has demonstrated his love for us in what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jeremiah 9, I want to close with this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, for all the ways that my own pride is reluctant to release, Father, I pray that you would help me to release. That the world would be crucified to me and I to the world. That the things that allure me would be lost in the majesty of what you've accomplished for me and what you long to accomplish through us as your people. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.